I'm Erica Ensign. And I'm Lisa Schmeiser. And we welcome you back to the saga of rereading epics in which we are rereading, reconsidering, and re-feeling, oh, feeling, Julian May's Saga of Pleiocene Exile and Galactic Milieu series. And for this episode, we have reread the third book of the Saga of Pleiocene Exile, The Nonborn King. Whoo, doggy. (laughs) That is one way of putting it, yes. (laughs) Yeah, I I didn't remember this book very well at all. And as I was reading it, I was remembering it. And yeah, a lot of stuff happened. How did I forget all of this stuff? But but before we dive into that, though, I want to com- do my, my what has become usual for me, uh, my mm-hmm. complaints about the synopsis. Oh. <laughs> before I the so when you looked up in a week and passed. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Okay. Once again, my complaint is simply that this is really spoilery and mm-hmm. i i completely remember what you said last time that it's important for the author to sort of point the reader at at the things that are important and and i agree with that however like in this case i feel like it was uh, it told us things that it was about to tell us in the book for mm-hmm. example we didn't actually learn anything about the rebellion in the milieu um in either of the first two books. And yet it is very clearly pretty much spelled out in the synopsis. Like, oh yeah, and this this huge rebellion happened in this year and blah, 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 blah. And then, and then we find out about it in this book. I feel like if, first of all, probably nobody's just going to jump in and read this book. But if they do, they're spoiled. And if mm-hmm. they are just reading the synopsis uh, to sort of refresh their memory to jump back in that's got to be really confusing because it'd be like wait a minute there's a rebellion did i know about this what did this happen (laughs) yeah because they barely mention it in the first two books and it's like it happened but there's no details well the way the time gate is positioned it's basically humanity's escape valve Mm -hmm. and um they don't explain or at least i don't recall um I don't even recall a throwaway line in any one of the first two books about, and then this group of rebels took the time gate hostage or, or, nope. or nope, none of that. Not a whisper. No. Um, so, <laughs> so um, you're mentioning the synopsis actually points to one. I hesitate to call it a complaint, but one of the things that I remembered finding challenging about this series when I was a teenager, and I had a moment of dissonance here is for the first two books in this four book series, you've basically set up a lot of courtly intrigue between humans and a couple different space alien factions and um, what will happen when there's a human usurper on the throne. And that is a saga complete and unto itself. But then this is the book where the whole saga takes like a hard left because all of a sudden mm-hmm. you've got a bunch of super powered, like superhumans, as it were, because they're all, you know, mentally off the charts. And it, throws everything into disruption again mm-hmm. yeah like it, the, the books that the the series of books that i thought i was reading turns mm-hmm. out is this is not the series of books that i thought i was reading and even like another <laughs> complaint about the synopsis and i will use the word complaint because i'm mm-hmm. complaining uh <laughs> is that uh in the synopsis she uh julian may points out that only one fourth as many women went to exile as men which is fine because that was already stated but she mm-hmm. says it was specifically because of the sterilization requirement and I don't think it was called out like in that 
that that strong of a of a way in the books earlier. So I mean, and this is okay. Maybe I'm not complaining as much as just being like, okay, so she's she's spelling out what was totally in her mind when she probably wrote it in the first place. But now that was made clear. However, I like being a person who has chosen not to have children and knowing mm-hmm. plenty of of women who have. I find it difficult to to think that only one fourth is like a quarter of the number of women yeah. um, as as men because of that reason, like maybe for other reasons. But I think um, I remember highlighting that passage in the first book, because then she launches into demographics like the forced sterilization. Um, yeah, it was mentioned. I just didn't feel like it was mentioned as it. the reason. Um, I don't think it was the. So. I remember her mentioning it and it being something that gave people pause. Mm-hmm. And um, <clears throat> I wouldn't call it a complaint about this book, but I think that May's attitudes towards parenting are fascinating. Um, <laughs> well, they are, because this whole book is called The Nonborn King. And um, with that deliberate phrasing, they're making Aiken Drum, who is essentially the product of uh, sperm donation and egg donation carried to gestation with a, a, a surrogate womb and then raised, you know, by adoptive parents. Like she's basically suggesting all through the book, that there's something fundamentally unnatural about Aiken because he wasn't conceived by two people deliberately. He's just a product of science. And um, there is a passage in the book I want to get to in a little bit that talks about like her really weird attitudes about how mothers need to suffer through labor. Um, but <laughs> it seems like in the first book, um, and you consider the body horror plotline that she's got going with the forced pregnancy and um, how monkeying with sterilization is always unnatural, whether it's Madame doing it or whether you've got your 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 crazed transsexual doctor who's doing it. Mm-hmm. She's got a real hang up about women and fertility. Yeah. And it comes out in some weird ways. And it especially comes out in this book. And I think that her putting it all on the table with, well, only unnatural women went through the gate because the ones who are fine with being sterilized were the ones who went through. Like, I feel like there's a little bit of that going on in subtext there, where for her, if you don't have the the, the generative urge to procreate, that's some kind of intrinsic selfishness. Mm-hmm. Because the more I read through this, too, the more you get the sense that while she has sympathy for everyone who's gone through the gate, she regards it as fundamentally selfish. <laughs> true yeah and so again i feel like um this book has a lot of really um really uncompromising ideas about um a woman's reproductive roles and her moral obligations therein and she tips her hand in the synopsis mm-hmm. well she tips her hand in the title she tips it again in the synopsis and then there's stuff in the book where when i read through it this time i was like wow that's judgy <laughs> And then there are other places where, and this is another thing that she sort of spoils in the synopsis. She talks about mm-hmm. the new king and queen of the Fervilag. Um, and you're all and, like, what? Yeah. Yeah. And you're like, oh, okay. I mean, we already I knew I guess they about, drowned. Yeah. <laughs> we already knew about Aifa and Sharn, uh, mm-hmm. like that they existed, but we didn't know that they necessarily lived maybe, or maybe we did, but but no, now they're we the didn't. king and queen. And yeah. And but that was one of the things that I noticed throughout the book is they are very egalitarian in terms of like the way that they operate together they are a team they are the king and the queen or the queen and the king like at the end of the book they're wearing matching silver diadems it's like they don't even have different crowns uh but i guess because they're equal they're also um 
aliens and strong no they're they're like strong moral oppositions they never have the moral upper hand in or mm. or they're always acting in the name of craven self-interest in the name of betrayal um the culture is still pretty violently um avaricious and the way that females within the frivoli culture have parody to men and are revered for their battle prowess and things like that. Again, I think it's May working out some some severe baggage over uh, mm-hmm. and a complementarian philosophy where male traits are X and female traits are Y and woe betide the culture that would uh, teach you otherwise. Yeah, this is the first, this book is the first time that we find out about a female furlag's second set of teeth. Yeah. Which, um, yeah. Which I can appreciate. (laughs) Yeah, honestly, like I seem to remember reading this the first time and thinking that would actually be kind of a nice thing (laughs) to have have some extra. Issue them to every college freshman as she comes in. Um, But... But it's um, this book was a tough one um, because, again, I feel like one of the things that May does in the first two is she is, again, enormously sympathetic towards why people would want to go back. But, um, well, I guess empathy. She's enormously empathetic without being too sympathetic. But here is where she starts getting really, really judgy. And the other reason this book is rough sledding for me is, like I said, I feel like the series kind of takes a left-hand turn. And um, I don't know if she read Milton's Paradise Lost immediately before writing the book or if it's something that she'd been turning over in her brain for years and years. But um, it honestly, by the end of the book, it honestly feels like she's setting it up as like a big morality play (laughs) and i was like i did not sign up for that i signed up for a story about time travel and aliens and psychics (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. it would be kind of like um the the best metaphor i've had is is with the movie monty python and the holy grail like the way it ends is that (laughs) they all get arrested by the yeah spoiler alert for a movie that's nearly 40 years old um They all get arrested by cops, modern day cops, and it's an incredibly anticlimactic ending and it comes on purpose and it comes out of left field and it throws the whole shared, it throws the whole universe that they've just created with the the, the, the squires clopping uh, uh, coconuts and demented sorcerers (laughs) asking questions and weird rabbits like all of that gets thrown out the window for, for the sake of the joke at the end of it. And as much as I enjoy Mark Remillard, you know, it's fun to watch everyone play off of him mm-hmm. i feel like a little bit like we're heading towards you know and now king arthur gets arrested by the by the bobbies <laughs> yep yeah and it, it really starts off immediately i mean it, okay so if you skip the synopsis you haven't been spoiled but then mm-hmm. you get right into the prologue and that's where bam she hits you with the uh the whole deal uh, the explanation of mm-hmm. mark remillard who is the the brother of saint jack the bodiless who led this metasonic yeah. rebellion that almost defeated literally all of the other members of the coagulant races um but they didn't quite make it so they escaped into exile and you know and like here he is. boom so it's it's like i'm reading this you know pseudo fantastical feudalistic society intrigue mm-hmm series and then i get the the prologue to this book and it's it's back to modern sci-fi again and i was just like what i came here for lord of the rings and you're giving me the first trilogy in the star wars series what is going on (laughs) 
<laughs> yep. But yeah. I mean, then then at least it does sort of dip back. But she's doing that thing again where she's kind of going, you know, here's a, one chapter from this point of view, a different chapter from a different point of view, et cetera, et cetera. And now Ocala and the rebels in Florida are sort of thrown into the mix. And mm-hmm. it might not be quite so jarring except for the fact that they have all kinds of modern technology. And I mean, by the end of the book, so does everybody else. Because, hey, guess what? All of the the Tenu have been sneakily keeping all of the tech that humans had been sneakily trying to bring back to the milieu. I mean, there's so much stuff that I... Okay, okay, yes, there are tens of thousands of humans who have come through the gate. But I find it a little bit hard to believe that that many of them were able to smuggle in that much... You know, big time tech. It's, um, and I don't know what it says about me where anytime I'm in a series and then all of a sudden someone like invents a combustion engine or they're like, we're experimenting with this new technology where we bury wires and then tap noises on one end. And like anytime a pre-industrial society all of a sudden vaults into the industrial revolution in the context of fantasy, I'm always like, oh, you've lost me. Um, And I felt like there's a little bit of that here because one of the things that I found intensely appealing about the first book was the idea of someone saying, yes, this, this, this blissed out metapsychic civilization I live in just blows. I don't fit. (laughs) Um, I am going to leave all of the comforts of my wonderful future life where I live in peace and prosperity and there are entire societies dedicated to my personal and professional fulfillment. I'm going to go back to a time when giant crocodiles swam in the sand and I'm going to camp and I'm going to choose to dig a latrine um, because I just can't stand modernity anymore. Like, I think that premise is fascinating, you know, because you're, mm-hmm. these are people who are deliberately turned their back on civilization. And then in this book, it's like, nope, surprise. <laughs> and, I suppose she has an epigraph at the beginning of the book. And the reason I highlighted it is it's spoilery in a way, because it starts off with the two sentences. um, Whatever we may do, excess will always keep its place in the heart of man, in the place where solitude is found. We all carry within us our places of exile, our crimes and our ravages. And so I'm like, this is this is made tip in her hand. This is how she feels about everybody. Mm-hmm. And she's she's pointing out now that there's no such thing as an unspoiled Eden. Um, so I guess that introducing the technology is almost like your your little chips and circuits snake in the garden. But at the same time, I'm like, really? Did you have to? Yeah. We we couldn't have had this whole meditation on human nature that you're having with, with without with, you know without the guns. Mm-hmm. I wonder, like, I I don't know much about the background of the the writing of this series or the next one. Um, and, you know, the next series, without being too spoilery about it, it takes place in the, you know, six million years in the future from, from what's happening here uh, before the time of the rebellion, which we already know about because she just told us about it. And I mm-hmm. wonder if, like, she had this idea all sort of sketched out in broad strokes at the very beginning and wrote the the first couple of, of books and then really started like after the Golden Torque really started to, to dig in to that, uh, you know, future society and mm-hmm. started to like flesh out the details of that and got so excited about it that she just decided that she was going to plunk Mark Remillard down in the past. And she's actually retconning her own 
ideas or if she had this planned out from the very beginning. But it just it doesn't feel like a, a natural progression in the way that I was mm-hmm. hoping that it would. Um, like it, we didn't even get really a hint at the end of the, the last book that Felice mm-hmm. needed like that she was getting help from from other people. No. So it just no. seems like a little out of left field. And I agree with you because these, the first four books in this series come off as time travel goes terribly wrong. A bunch of people realize they've made a terrible mistake, arrested development style. They work to undo the mistake. Um, That would be an interesting series unto itself. But then in this book, she's like, oh, and we're going to throw in the architect of this rebellion. We've never spent any time on. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, you're going to be forced to pay attention to his agenda and his motivations because they inform so many other characters. So now that's what this book is about, is this guy who has effectively walked in from stage left and taken over. Yeah. On the other hand, I do want to say that, like, that is that is interesting, like looking at it from the other direction. Uh, it's it's if if you're less focused on the fantastical, you know, ancient times stuff and you're more into the futuristic science fiction-y psychics in the mm-hmm. future type stuff then this is kind of an interesting way to introduce one of the the main players in that saga or that part of the saga because you're you're getting the only information that you have about this from him and his children and a little bit from elizabeth who you know was there um, this really does read like milton's paradise lost where again satan gets all the best lines and and I think what happened is once she started writing Mark Remillard, he got a hold of her imagination and he couldn't let go. She really seems to love that character. Yeah. I can't tell if she's in love with him or wants to be him or she's just in love with what she's written him to represent or what the story is. But again, I think what happened is this was originally going to be a story about Aiken and Elizabeth and... um them arguing over how to shape a new world and then she had mark come strolling in and everything took that sharp left because he was a lot more interesting yeah and it's a pity because aiken is a fascinating character yeah i don't know that i necessarily agree with her about mark being uh i i agree that the book thinks mark's more interesting mm-hmm. um but i i feel like his entrance gives less room for the rest of it to breathe i mean cuz yeah. and you also have felice thrown in there too um which is where we start you know she's yeah. uh, she's a raven she's kind mm-hmm. of gone mad um and she's stealing all of the torques and stuff but her story and the idea of uh how she's <laughs> i like I, I wrote this down uh, at the very beginning she's quote unquote methodical in her unsanity i appreciated mm-hmm. the use of the word un- or the prefix unsanity, un- yeah. instead of insane mm-hmm. um and I, I i'm not exactly sure what she's trying to get at with that but i like the the sort of setting it apart and she's not that the author is not the only one that uses that that term. I can't remember who it is, but at least one other person uses that uses unsane or unsanity to describe her later in the book, which I find fascinating. So can we if we're going to talk about this, can we kind of talk about maybe um, like instead of going through section one, section no, two, let's section do three. character and yeah. like broad, broad strokes of, of what's going on with whom? Where do you want to start? Yeah. So it's Mark Remillard who calls Felice unsane. Ah, okay. And then Felice calls herself unsane later after her disastrous 
after her disastrous redaction by Elizabeth. Um, Is but, it, well, disastrous from some Well, disastrous point of by view. Elizabeth's standards. Um, For sure. Incredibly ill thought out by other people's standards. Yeah. I mean, like, it goes, the, the redaction works. Like, it, it goes the way that, that she it expected fixes it to. It fixes what's broken with her in theory. But then, like, this comes back to Julian May's whole thing about you have, you have a moral obligation to choose to deny your desires or to choose to expiate your sins because the whole point to Felice is she starts off the book madder than a hatter because let's not forget she's somebody who has a legitimately misconnected brain like we find out over the course of the book that she had a terrible childhood trauma of some sort which is alluded to Mm -hmm. but never spelled out thank god um yeah but she has this terrible childhood trauma which has her confusing pain and affection um so you had somebody who had trauma, who only felt something when she was either giving or receiving pain, who gets thrown into the hands of a torturer who regards pain as a thing that he really enjoys. Mm-hmm. So her wires get crossed for him and she begins to fixate on him because she's like, you love me. We know from the second book that you can pull somebody up to full operancy as a metapsychic, um, and there's a great deal of pain involved. And done in a correct and functional way like elizabeth does with braid ship spouse like elizabeth willingly assumes the pain because it's selfless and it helps other people grow color kid is like nope 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 other people should assume pain doesn't realize he's pushed felice to operancy and then in this book when elizabeth is like okay things have really hurt we can iron out the kinks in your brain and then you can choose to be sane and you can choose to be the kind of good citizen the galactic milieu wants you to do felice has literally handed the choice to be a moral or an amoral person and by the terms that the author sets forth in the book she chooses wrong yeah and i am quite uncomfortable with the fact that they make it clear that the redaction works to the point that it makes Felice sane. And, yeah. you know, like a sane Felice does not mean an altruistic Felice, as uh, as Aiken says to Elizabeth when they're yeah. sort of mind chatting about it, which, OK, <laughs> that's fine. But then she goes, uh, May goes on to very clearly posit that the desire to torture another human being, to cause other people pain, is a perfectly sane thing to to want to do for reasons. And I have real, real trouble with that because I'm not entirely sure that that's the case. Like, I would like to think that if we ever develop this metapsychic technology, Mm -hmm. um, I would like to think that if we cleared out all of the gunk in people's human brains, that that the desire to cause pain to other people would be one of the things that would disappear. And Julian May does not think that that's that's true. Well, I'm glad you mentioned unsane because I pulled up her last quote. Which is when she she's monologuing to the color kit in her head right after she's come up with the idea that if she encases him in gold and turns his nerves into conductive metal, she can more effectively torture him because she loves him. Mm-hmm. And the passage reads, oh, beloved, before it was my joy to receive. And that was sick and unsane, wasn't it? But now I am well and ready for the joy of giving relished by all sane minds. But we know, don't we, beloved, that the sight of the suffering other only confirms our own power and our freedom from pain, sealing our sense of worth. We triumph as we are spared. We are gratified by the price paid, not by us. Yeah. Julian May sticks all of her cards on the table here, where the message that she's sending is that the um, the only time is acceptable to wield your gifts 
or to want something is if you want selflessly, because right after Felice feels, you know, says, we're gratified by a price paid, not by us. She actually thinks of Amory and says, and she suffered and died for me as her foolish God did for her. Um, and, you know, again, this is, I feel like, like either May was going through like a heavy spiritual time in her life or, <laughs> or something, but this is just so very suffering and nobles give up your suffering offer up your suffering and you shall be redeemed through it and if you refuse to suffer then there's something wrong with you mm -hmm. yeah and... but if you but if you make other people suffer you're a bad person but you're yeah. you're totally sane you're totally like a normal human being like that's and... okay and to ping pong from her to Cullicut, because they come to what is essentially the same end. Like through this book, we find out that Cullicut is like, I'm so bored of living, but I'm so scared of dying. Mm -hmm. I know that Felice is after me now because I very badly miscalculated what I could do to her. Yeah. Whoops. And at the end, her obsession for him and his fear of dying, like they essentially fuse together into one tiny sentient coal-like thing that is promptly buried under an avalanche. <laughs> And I was like, well, that's a choice. And I guess it's supposed to show that both of them are prisoner to their own selfish fears. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's clearly meant as a punishment. Um, and, and honestly, you know, there's nothing to root for with Cullicut. He's a sadist through and through. And you know, you're supposed to be like, yeah, he gets his. But at the end of it, I'm like, wow, that's, that's, that's really hard. <laughs> it just shows that bad things happen when you do things Julian May doesn't approve of. <laughs> Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Anything else to say about Felice? Um, I sort of feel like over the course of the three books, she was really hard done by. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like in some ways she was held up as a dark mirror to both Elizabeth and Aiken. Um, because on the one hand, Elizabeth is fully operant again, and she's somebody who, as you said, had like Elizabeth had dedicated her life to cleaning the gunk out of people's brains and yeah. helping them become fully operant. Um, and on the other hand, like Felice, Aiken is kickstarted into a higher level of operancy just by, by coming here and having a set of circumstances. I still feel like she got a raw deal because by book three, what we see is that she's a victim of trauma and abuse who never got help. And um, the person who offered it, the people who offered it were never willing to put aside their own agendas long enough to actually pay attention to who she was as a result of both her early childhood trauma and her sustained torture at the hands of an extremely gifted sadist. Um, you know, with Amory, she had always put her God first and, you know, offered Felice help in a capacity that Felice was unequipped to take. Even yep. even when she refused it, she was still, still unequipped. And here, Elizabeth is just kind of projecting her own, well, this is how you should be, onto Felice and, and sticking her on the template that the other operants in the milieu have instead of actually paying attention to the fact that they're in a barbaric civilization six million years away from what Elizabeth knows and, and, and is comfortable with. And I feel like everyone focused on what Felice could do. But they don't ever stop to look any deeper, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So I, I feel I feel like she's poorly done by. Yeah, I I agree. And I the the bits that I liked the best of Felice were when she is just at her 
at her cave with, you know, she's like a regular little nature goddess. She's got mm-hmm. all of these animals that are waiting upon her. It's like, it's like Snow White or something. And you've got all of the, the little forest animals running around and, and bringing her water and snacks and stuff. And I just like, it seems so idyllic and peaceful and lovely. And like, you know, I'd read this before I knew it wasn't going to last, but that made it even all the more painful to sort of read those bits. She's always connected with animals and it shows that, you know, even at her most quote unquote unsane, she's always had those very human needs for connection and acceptance. Mm-hmm. And she never got that from another human being nope. ever. She, you know, she didn't get that from another sentient being. She only ever got them from animals and she's was repeatedly used by people over and over in the different books. And then in this book, she's built up to be this kind of amoral monster when what she is, is a deeply damaged, traumatized young woman who's never given anything that she needs to to heal from her damage. Which makes it all the more sort of icky that the uh, the children of the, the rebels are you know her devils are trying to to tell her oh no we're your friends and we're like she's just like she's a tool to them she's totally a tool and she's a tool that they are very like they are just going in with their big guns of all of this tech that suddenly now exists in this world that they're Mm going to try to use to to take her out um like i never a hundred percent knew exactly who the book wanted me to be rooting for at any given time, like I could kind of tell, but like it was it was balanced enough that uh, that I, I appreciated that depending on who you are as a reader, you could be hoping for Felice to win. You could be hoping for the rebels children to 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 beat her, that sort of thing. Um, but, but in that case, like I was 100 percent team Felice just because like they were they were trying to fool her. I don't care if she's yeah. a monster, quote unquote. And that idiot Von Jero is busy killing dolphins for fun. Uh, I'm yeah, glad okay. when she blew him up, I was like, justice for the dolphins. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And they're they're acting like it's some, oh, well, he's, you know, oh, it's a tragedy that she then causes this squall and someone else. And I'm like, you know, you guys are busy killing animals for sport and trying to manipulate a psychic, a, a, an unstable young woman for your own end. Yeah. So, yeah. uh have yeah, a and smile and, and sit down. And Ramapithecines. <laughs> like, she's, like, mm-hmm. he is actually killing, like some poor kid's mother like right in front it was just yeah, yeah. he was yeah, like he was one of the few characters that is very very clearly you know the black hat versus the the white hat but yeah but then you have cloud who is uh, along for the ride and seems to be a pretty decent character overall like she's not in the same way um i'm like she's decent in comparison to say her father yeah who turns his son into a fish at some point that's right <laughs> and um <laughs> i hadn't remembered that from the first reading no me either and- <laughs> uh, what I read this time, and you know, Mark's son Hagen mouths off to him, and 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 since Mark has all these, uh, you know, superior meta faculties, he has everyone imagine that that Hagen's a fish, and then he throws him in the water and runs him on a line for a while to uh, assert awesome. dominance. Yeah, and I think you're supposed to realize there that um, Mark is so focused on his mental man goal that. Um, he has no other considerations, but it, it comes off as like cheap melodrama to me. Mm. And um, through this book, like you say, it's hard to figure out, are you supposed to sympathize with the children of the rebels because they didn't ask for this life and they want out of it if possible? 
and you're supposed to be like, yeah, free choice. It's for everybody. They want the same thing that the people who are currently alien slaves want. Or if you're supposed to be like, oh, I see all of the worst aspects of being smug psychics came back six million years mm -hmm. or, or, or what the deal is. Um, yeah. And the fact that they're willing to use kind of any means necessary to get what they want, which is let's face it that's exactly what their their parents did you know the yeah. older generation was just like by any means necessary we want to be in charge and yeah you're doing the same thing kids i don't know if it's um brought up in this book or if it's because i remember it from another book but um patricia who's mark's second in command mm -hmm. and the woman he's keeping company with um Patricia was a dirigent, which is basically like your planetary boss, your planetary diplomat. Um, she was the diplomat of a planet that she actually had ordered blown up because it like it mm -hmm. got in the way of some battle Mark was was fighting. Yeah, and that, so, that is it, her title. I don't think was spelled out in this book. But yeah, it does say specifically that she doomed her entire planet to die. Yeah. So, you know, I think it's pretty effective to show that... Um, the apples don't fall far from the tree in that the children of the rebels had no problem letting million, not letting thousands of, of people and die. And their argument is, well, they're not really people, they're aliens, um, which is a dumb argument to have when you've come from a milieu where there's a bunch of different sentient races. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, I, I guess I think you're right in that it shows that they're, you know, like father, like son. Um, there's a certain type of, um, calculating disregard for 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 life that we're supposed to respond to negatively that it suggests is culturally transmitted mm -hmm. um but you know at the same time we're also supposed to still still feel horror over the um you know the way that the tanya we have the flying hunt there's the tony whalen stuff where you find out um about uh how terrible the the, the fervor like warriors are in general mm -hmm. um you know, all this stuff. So, um... yeah, honestly, I have to say that, like, by the end of this book, the only people that I was genuinely rooting for, and maybe that's because they, they take up so little space in this book, is the Howlers. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Like... I, I, I want King Sugal to uh to to be the winner of everything. He's not the one that's attacking the Tanu and the, the low lives and the humans. He's not the one who is being terrible to Tony Wayland. He's able to look beyond the sort of racist uh stuff that the rest of his his clan does and marries a a half human woman, half human, half tanu, and is like it, and at they're this committed point, he's... to making a better life for their people. Exactly. Like, for his this people. This is the idea, though, is that both Sugal and Catelyn the Dark-Eyed are, are very selfless. Mm -hmm. And I think the reason they're included is to show that they're they're living their May-approved values in terms yep. of uh, what it means to... you Because know, uh, Catelyn had to leave her, her culture and her people and marry somebody that was considered an abomination. She had to leave a high table, the whole nine yards. Um and she chooses to do this because she's selflessly devoted to this idea of a better society. And Sugol is is a selfless monarch who's devoted to the idea of making sure his people have a better lot in life than they do. 
Yep. Although mm-hmm. even just between the two of them, she does mm-hmm. get a little bit gender essentialist in terms of the roles. Like in one of the few chapters that we have talking about them, uh, it's it's very interesting that okay, so all of the the, the sort of poor relations, you know, the little girls in the the red boots. Uh, it's I wrote down the quote: "Compassionate Catlinel houses them in the dry upper caves, fattened them up, and provided them with fine new clothes." It's it's her that does yeah. all of those things. It's not Sugal. It is it is the woman in the relationship that takes mm-hmm. it upon herself to be. The compassionate carer. Well, men think strategery. Women think about who uh, women women do the dishes. I guess, guess. and and get (laughs) them by the clothes. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, so, so and it's all virgins who are getting married like there mm-hmm. are there are some really old-fashioned ideas in that whole deal with the the great howler migration. Yeah. Well, you know, the tanning women are sexually insatiable and therefore completely disregarding of the sanctity of life. Um, and of mm-hmm. course, they can't reproduce because, uh, you know, they're being punished for their 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 sexual ver- veracity. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the same way all those unnatural women who came to the time gate are now being punished for thinking that they had any say over their reproductive um, right. autonomy because that really should be left up to, you know, the divorce of the divine or something like that. Um which actually leads me into the thing that, like, I just keep coming back to because it boggles me so much, um, which is the Mercy plotline. Here we go. Here we go. So, <laughs> so Mercy, um, say what you will. Like, again, proving that she's Tanu through and through and can actually adapt to circumstances in an admirable way. Um Mercy is under the impression that her husband has been swept away in the Great Deluge. Aiken rescues her and um, is enamored of her. Yep. And um, they become, or they, they plan to marry at the Grand Loving. Mm-hmm. She's currently pregnant with um, the late and unlamented king's child. Because, you know, there was the whole... Every woman not- gets to be yeah. impregnated by the Thagdal first. Yep. And then they can do what they please. Um, so... We already know this, this coupling is doomed for a few reasons. But um, for me, the big tip off is when she starts calling him Hermes Chrysorapsis, uh, because like the minute Julian May starts referring to people in terms of Greek gods, you know, they're on the wrong side of her morality spectrum. Mm. Like she did it consistently with the Tanu in the last book. And look where half of them ended up at the bottom of the sea. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and um she always turns to greek mythology when somebody is about to make a somebody is 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 wielding power for the wrong reasons or making the wrong choice um and then we also establish that um she's a bad actor in this relationship early on too because she says to him straight out you love me but what will you do to me if i don't love you and um He's like, well, I think you know. And she's all, I think I do. Um, I don't love you, but eh, we'll see how this works out for me anyway. And uh, the answer is it works out poorly. (laughs) And um, it works out poorly because we discover that Nodon is indeed alive and um, has actually been sheltered in in a deep cave, which is why nobody could hear him. And um, he teams up with some other Tanu traditionalists to try to take back the the kingdom. It does not go well for him. Um, and since Mercy was helping him behind the scenes by making Aiken's stash of uh, future weaponry inaccessible by, by helping set up the final confrontation and things like that, it also does not go well for her. Mm-hmm. Um, 
she he ends up like psychically subsuming all of her powers and then doing the same thing to Nodon and then being like, all right, any questions? And everyone's like, no, no, no questions. But the thing that intrigued me about the Mercy plotline here is is she marries for, or rather she couples off with, with Aiken for pragmatism. Mm-hmm. We see that he loves her and he's changed and transformed by that. She gets off on being scared of him like that's laid out very yep, sp- that's clear. explicitly in a couple parts of the book but to me it seems like the harshest treatment may has is reserved for her becoming a mother because mm. um when it is time for her to deliver her baby she doesn't go through your typical labor process like she figures out this way using the psychic power of creativity and some of that magical like healing skin stuff she figures out a way to just painlessly pass the child out yep and boom it's all done there's 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 no there's no bloody childbirth there's no pain there's no risk no to anybody suffering. no suffering right and then um the minute she finds out about nodon she flies to him and she's like oh my gosh oh my gosh things are wonderful and um they reunite and she says to him i'll never leave you not even to return to a grain all she's only my flesh you are my mind's life and that's the second time in the book that she explicitly renounces one of the facets of motherhood because first she renounces the the suffering and pain of labor then she renounces the idea that she's supposed to focus on her baby's well-being and nurture her baby instead what she does is she selfishly as its position the book goes back to the you know erotic satisfaction that she gets from Nodon. Yeah. And then when she comes back and, and Aiken's already onto her, yeah, um, he she comes back and, and she's holding a grain all while they're watching the flag thing. She can't even pick up that her own child is fussing because she's hungry mm-hmm. and she's not connected yeah, with the Aiken child at all. Aiken has to tell her that. A- yeah. Aiken who has no investment whatsoever in the infant is like, can't you see she's hungry? Let her eat. And she hands her off to a wet nurse. Um, and again, that's the third renunciation of motherhood in there. And I'm like, oh, three times before the cock crows. Um, <laughs> totally. The biblical imagery is there. But it seems that one of the reasons Mercy gets what's coming to her, which is a little literal erasure from the story, like mm-hmm. she's turned into a pile of ash, her psychic powers are subsumed. Um it's suggested that she basically asked for it because she did unnatural things like subvert how motherhood is supposed mm-hmm. to work. And pursue her own sexual pleasure at the price of everything else um you never see you you see her practicing court intrigues but you don't see her being a good leader the same way you do with cat Linnell. she's really like the author's antipathy for who mercy is really comes through in this book i feel yeah and, and i think the 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 vast difference between who the author is as a person and who I am as a person is very made very clear to me in that like yes i can see all of those things and i i don't like the way that Mercy is treated in this book because many of the choices that she makes had me being like Team Mercy uh, because she's she is one of the the only people in the books that is actually doing everything motivated purely out of love and yeah it's a it's a quote unquote selfish love but she she genuinely adores Nadan. They love each other. They are like the one, I think, healthy couple in the book um, because they really love each other and they both recognize who the other person is as a a full 
being. So they, they have cherish each other's personalities. They do. They don't care if the other one is sleeping with somebody else because that's not important. They are mm-hmm. they are polyamorous and that doesn't take anything away from how much they love each other. And and as, as I said, you know, my view on, on on children makes me think like especially if I was uh, had gone back to a world where I was forced to give birth to the child of the king, uh, uh, I probably wouldn't have a whole lot of super maternal feelings uh, towards that kid, especially in comparison to finally finding the love of my life that you know I never knew could have possibly existed until I went back six million years in the past. So uh, most of the choices that she makes are choices that I am totally on board with. So at the end where she is literally uh, literally screwed to death by Aiken and then turned into a pile of ash. I was just like, not okay. Ugh, it's, it's, I, I think the thing is, is what did she do so wrong other than become a genetic throwback where she, we established that she's literally biologically yeah. incompatible with the world she's born into. Not her fault. So, you know, she, so if you want to talk essentialism, she's finally in the society that's made for her or that she's made for. True. And She's married to a high-ranking noble, so of course it's going to be both a political marriage and a love match. She was surviving. She was surviving in a court that had just been turned topsy-turvy thanks to several hundred million gallons of water. Mm-hmm. And um, yep, she's and, punished and, for it at it, every step of the way. And, and to and, add a- injury to insult uh, is, is the fact that in the end, Nadon even kind of... Uh, screws her over because he's the one that sends her back to Aiken even though Mercy says to him I foresaw that he would be my death and I was like no 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 nobody would ever kill the person that they loved he's just so blinded by his his need for power and his great love for Mercy because I, 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 I he's not going to believe that anybody would kill someone that they love as much as he loves Mercy obviously he doesn't know human beings um, but yeah so well, like he also the... can't fathom the level of betrayal like it literally mm-hmm. never occurs to him that when people are betrayed they're going to act out he's too noble for that and like at the <sighs> end he sees her corpse of ash and you know he says that you know she warned me and like in my notes I have yes she f***ing did in capital letters because I was yeah. so mad <laughs> oh she warned me and you're like <laughs> no it's it's Again, I feel in the same way that I feel like Felice is used repeatedly by people who don't bother to take a look at her pain and her trauma and ask themselves the questions, what can I do for her that addresses who she actually is and not what she can do for me? I feel that, that with Mercy, um, she's punished simply for existing. Yep. And I also feel like all of the gratuitous shots about what a terrible mother she is, like you didn't need to make those shots you know, I could even argue that it would be equ- it would be equally tragic, if not more so, if it turned out she was a devoted mother to this offspring that she was coerced into having. Mm-hmm. Like, that could have been part of it. You didn't have to make her a dynasty villain like they did. Um, and I just, I feel increasing, and, and again, the t- between the title of the book implying that Aiken is somehow unnatural because he wasn't conceived by two human beings who set out to have a kid. He was, in fact, essentially part of a wide-scale, science-driven attempt to populate a planet. Um, and the treatment of motherhood in this book, uh, compared to um, how, how you know, Catlinel comes off, mm-hmm. or even um, Hulda, it's... 
I'm really uncomfortable with the judgment that she chooses to pass on people vis-a-vis their reproductive choices, especially when she's explicitly set up a world where reproductive coercion is baked into the very fabric of the society. Yeah, it's it's baked into the fabric of half of the society and the other sa- half of the society have teeth in their nether reason- regions as, as yeah. women. So they have 100% complete control over what happens yeah. to them. Yeah. So yeah, so Brian died last book, Mercy died this book. Um, yeah, and it was, it's also interesting that, uh, you know, Mercy reminds Nadan of what happened to Brian. Uh, and it turns out Aiken's reaction is the polar opposite of that. Even before he sucks all of her life energy as they're having sex, he is he's taking it and absorbing it and healing himself every time they get it on. Uh, yeah. So that that shows the points out Yep, again that he is he is some kind of aberrant. He is Mm -hmm. not a normal human being. No, he takes and he takes because I guess the idea is that when life comes forth unnaturally, it has to recapitulate um, the circumstances it was denied. But but yeah, she's like you said, she's she's quite literally um, Roger to death. And there's even a passage there, the spear golden and rising from the dark, full of energy, hungry, a living shaft, not one of glass, as she would know it would be first discharging light and pain. And that calls back to the Felice Cullicut ending. And that Mm. calls back to Felice and Cullicut's torture. (laughs) And it calls back to Brian being drained to death by mercy. Um, I didn't pick up on a lot of this when I was a teenager, but mm-hmm. the you know when I went back and read it now, I thought this is somebody who's really been processing a whole lot about sexuality and free will and um, <laughs> what it means to live a, a moral and upright life. And um, some of these characters are just doomed from the start. Mm-hmm. And again, there's empathy without sympathy for some of them. But I found she was never particularly empathetic towards Mercy. Like Mercy is first this fevered object of obsession in the first book by Brian. Um, She's somebody who has the nerve to thrive whole and complete unto herself through three books. And then she's the object of Aiken's obsession in this book. and And that's how it ends her. And I'm just kind of bothered by the fact that, um, the woman who dared to make herself happy and find fulfillment is the one who gets quite literally erased from the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nadan reaches down his silver hand and wipes her out. Like yes! at the very end. Yes. <laughs> wow. That's a, that's an image right there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and again, I found, I found it like that image stuck in my head from the first time I read the book. Cause um, in my head, I was also kind of, as an 18 year old, I was also imagining it like the, the molds that you see cast um, in the lava in Pompeii. Like, yes, because, you know, you, you, I'm sure you when I both read National Geographic growing up, we have the same nerd tendencies. <laughs> and they always had the oh, here's what the velocity of Pompeii and the scientists would like pour the plaster of Paris into the mm-hmm. holes in the lava and out would come these these pitiable figures in their death throes. And so I had always kind of imagined mercy like that, except capable of crumbling. And that had stayed in my head, but a whole lot of the rest of it had really not, you know, and then when I read it this time, I just thought, oh my God, this is another character who never got a fair shake. <laughs> yep. Um. So, you know, like... I end up liking Aiken a lot in this in this book. Me I mean, too, and I'm Murder surprised. of Mercy, notwithstanding. I, <laughs> yeah, I didn't. I I didn't think that I liked him that much, and I feel like 
I feel like I don't want to like him, but I just can't help it. Um, there are there are parts where I feel like even the book wants me to to be rooting for Aiken. Like when he's coming to steal all of Felice's golden torques and like, you know, when I think about it cerebrally in my head, I really shouldn't want a whole bunch more golden torques to be thrown into the society that Aiken is is ruling with an iron fist. I should be, you know, I should be with the low lives, heart and soul. And I should be siding with Felice in this case because she's, you know, because she's beloved by squirrels and lynxes and stuff like that uh and yet when he is sneaking up and she is out like i am i'm on the edge of my seat so to speak and worried that uh that they're all going to get found out and that felice is going to come and blast them because i didn't actually remember what happened um so i feel like that's a testament to julian may's ability to to write well because i was rooting for him even though i didn't really want to be i just couldn't help myself so the moment that he won me over forever and for good, um, <laughs> and and now I'm like he's my he's my favorite, <laughs> even when he kills his wife a few chapters later, is um, after Elizabeth breaks the news that um, oh my god, Felice is loose, and mm-hmm. and Aiken is like Elizabeth, what? And she explains what happens, and she's like, this is a real emergency. You have to hide Kulaket in a cave, and he's like, no, I don't, because Kulaket <laughs> is an essential part of my plan to get the the sphere that i need and she's like no no um they do the the whole psychic back and forth where words are all running together and she's like loose loose felice is loose 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 felice is. Yes, and the rhythm um, of that statement is lovely and what he does at the end of that conversation after elizabeth goes back into her room without doors to ruminate on to, to be elizabeth basically what he does is he, that's it, hide, he yelled. Leave me to shovel up the, mm, you bungling do-gooder. Well, if I have to, I will. And that was the moment where I'm like, that's the day Aiken became a king. Because it's so far from the kid who persuaded everybody to blow up a whale on Delreda. Yeah. And it's so far from the guy who bopped from person to person and group to group out of a sense of um, overactive curiosity and self-interest. This is somebody who's like, I didn't make this problem, but I'm going to fix this problem. Mm-hmm. And then I'm going to make sure this problem never happens again. And I thought, Oh, we've really seen something here. Like his, like in the, in the annals of Aiken drum, mercy is just a bad girlfriend. Like we can agree mm-hmm. that separately they're great together. They were a disaster. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, we can agree that 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 relationship was just never that relationship was just never going to work out. But over the course of this book, we see Aiken learn what it means to love and lose and gain an empathy. And then we see him step up time and again and take on responsibilities that will ultimately enrich his kingdom. And yes, it enriches his power base, but he's also come to the conclusion where he's like making life better for the people I rule benefits me. So that is going to be my guiding principle. It doesn't matter to him that he got to, like, the noble ruling part through enlightened self-interest. He got there. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so he'll clean up messes because it's in his best interest and his kingdom's best interest to do it. And I I really liked that. I liked that, like, Sugal, like, and his many tentacles just kind of ooze onto the scene and he already exudes nobility, right? Mm -hmm. But um, Aiken, we watch it happen to him. Or we watch him choose it time and again. Like, there's a whole lot about Felice making a bunch of bad choices in this book. But we don't pay as much attention to the choices that Aiken makes. And how 
he is effectively building his sense of self and his sense of morality experience by experience, choice by choice. I'm glad that you point that out because I think I just got really hung up on the fact that Aiken wanted to take control and wanted to rule. And I feel like, I mean, I've always kind of had the, the the feeling that, you know, anybody who wants to be president of the United States probably shouldn't be. So mm-hmm. my thought was <laughs> here was like, okay, he wants to take control. He wants to be a ruler. Therefore, I just don't trust him. And because of that, I think it actually did blind me to, to, to seeing the way that he sort of evolved as, as a ruler and as a leader. And, and you're right. Like he has, he's basically, said he's he's not going to throw over the entire structure of this society because that would probably you know he's probably right in thinking that that would just create so much more chaos that it would end up being worse for everybody involved um you know it's it's like i still want to root for the the low lives and their you know dream of of pure socialism, I guess. I don't even know exactly what kind of a structure they're thinking they're going to get or if there's just going to be complete and utter anarchy and is that going to work better? Um, But they already have social structures in place that exist. And even though the Mediterranean has now filled in and they've lost the capital city, there are still a bunch of other cities. There's still lots of planes and wheat coming in and they've got food and they've got avenues of distribution and all kinds of of things that make life easier and better for people. So I guess in the end, I can't really blame Aiken for wanting to uh, help continue the existence of society as a society. Um, And yeah, thank you for helping me come to that realization. It, it sounds like a terrible job because he's yeah. got to deal with the hardline traditionalists among the Tanu, like Nodon and, and his trader, trader's little band. And he's got to rebuild after this terrible flood. He's got a brand new leadership among the Fervalab champing at the bit to, to murder him dead. Mm-hmm. And then he's got the biggest, baddest metapsychic that has ever existed, who um, <laughs> who is currently not happy with with another bunch of super powered psychics who are winging their way across the Atlantic ocean. And then you've got your wild card Felice. And by the end of the book, Aiken has effectively figured out how he's going to deal with all of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and you know what, thinking back lot. to like, let's, let's imagine our, our little Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's court of Aiken drum in the first book near the beginning of the many colored land. Like as he, he and Ramo Ramo are flying around at their first, you know, Tanu party and getting it on like if somebody would have come in and told him this you know someday you're going to get to rule all of these people but this is what it is going to mean these are the kinds of decisions you're going to have to do you're going to have to make these are the kinds of awful trials and tribulations that you're going to have to go through I bet you that that kid just flies out the window and is just like no thanks see ya Um, you make a really great point that he has grown since then because I don't think I don't think he would choose to make that jump without all of the uh the spaces in between it's so it's 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 so weird to me how this story kind of takes a back seat to all the the retributive stories or the punishment stories because um and part of me understands the logic she's moving people off the board so you can move some more people on the board i think what happened again like we said earlier is is mark kind of sauntered in and he and his merry band of misfits have kind of taken over her imagination Mm -hmm. um Especially since we have entire chapters devoted to what are essentially family arguments between the first generation of rebels and the second generation. Yeah. 
And part of me is like, who cares? Bring me back to Basil's Bastards. I want to know more about Mr. Betsy. <laughs> I know. I actually found the entire uh, first part of this book, the post-Diluvian section, really mm-hmm. slow. And I just, yeah. I struggled through it. Um, and then, you know, once we got to like, okay, that the howlers are on their migration and, you know, we're getting to find out what's what's going on with, you know, Burke and Basil and all of those guys. Like that was when it really sort of started to kick into gear for me. I really just didn't care about anything that happened at the beginning. It's just like, get to it already. This was something I remember having no patience for the first time I read this book, and I actually had to struggle to focus this time, is I don't care what happens to Cool Hall, Earthshaker, and Fee and Skybreaker. Yep. Like, the only way I'm interested in what goes on is it's enlightening to see how people who have come to rely on their meta senses do when they don't have them fully operant anymore. Because mm-hmm. this, this whole, and when they don't have, like, a vast army of servants to take care of them. Yeah, I mean, I was interested in the idea of the like the the twins that actually like shared a brain, so to speak. But we didn't really know almost anything about them before this, except for their names. And I felt like the way that they are described in their pathetic, you know, on their pathetic island or in Africa or wherever they are, the book is expecting us to care about them a lot more than we actually have been made to care about them. Yeah. And um, I was like, I don't, this sounds wrong. I don't care. I don't care. <laughs> I don't care that they're suffering. I didn't, like you said, I didn't have a good beat on who they were before. Um, all that this tells me is that all of those poor Silver Torque and Grey Torque and Ramas were doing a hell of a lot more work than anyone ever gave them credit for. Because yep. these guys fell apart. <laughs> they have no, and I'm like, they're knights and they're uh, elevated rank and they have no survival skills to speak of how is that even possible in the type of society they have which is wholly dependent on doing wild hunts and and things like that you know i think it does actually make sense though because you know we get several times uh in the previous book where the old guard of the tenu are complaining about how the youngsters don't want to go into like crafting or anything like that all they want to do is you know arts and 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 stuff and you know flying around and just basically being dilettantes. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, so this does follow on from that. I just, like you said, I, I really, I didn't care either. Yeah. And I think, I suspect, and I have not read on to the next book yet, so I'm. Mm-hmm. this is not spoiler. I just think that at the end, it sort of is setting up a relationship of some sort between Cloud and Kuhal. And I feel like this is another case of where, like, uh, Julian May has fallen in love with with her rebel characters and Mark Remillard yeah. and his daughter. So the the reason that Kuhal is so important in that beginning chapter there is because he's going to come back later and help heal Cloud and vice versa. And that's that's why he exists. Yeah. No. I mean, this is um. If you think about the nine books as a whole. I would argue it's probably great that Mark Remillard strolled onto the page and she was like, mm-hmm. I need, I need to backfill this. Um, <laughs> Cause we wouldn't have the last five books without those, without this book in the next and Mark. But at the same time, I feel like it's to the disservice of the many vibrant characters who have been denied a chance to be more complicated or to get this, the, the same amount of time on the page. So, um, I have I have surprisingly mixed feelings about this book. Um, 
because mm-hmm. you can kind I kind you kind of get the sense it's two stories mashed in one, and she's trying very hard to weave them all together so it makes a grand whole. But the rebels just suck up so much oxygen from from the word go. Yeah, and um, there are so many things she went to such an effort to build the world in the first two books, and yes, she flooded out the world, but simply rebuilding especially with the um, addition of a couple operant human beings and the subtraction of much of the host of Nonceval, like that would have been enough castle intrigue for another two books. Yep. And uh, what I'm left with with this book is the sense that what I'm reading are two books that were mashed together, or rather she'd been working on the Remillards and couldn't figure out a way to launch them or to get people interested in the idea and was like, aha, and uh, <laughs> plant that seed early six million years early there's there's certainly imagery in this book that i'm not gonna forget um a lot of it around felice uh mercy's obliteration um aiken's talk with elizabeth where you realize he's really stepped stepped up and become the king you meant him mm-hmm. to be and speaking but, of elizabeth uh, mm-hmm. i <sighs> was i was so disappointed because i had really come to appreciate her quite a bit by the end of the previous book i was I, like i was rooting for her i wanted her to become the most important person in the world the way that breed ship spouse said that she was going to be and you know sit in her ivory tower and provide wisdom and you know be this benevolent person and here she really does just fall apart like and it was mm-hmm. it was that moment that you mentioned you know her and and Aiken talking about it where she just she not only did she make the wrong choice which that's that I have no problem with her making the wrong choice because she's idealistic enough to think that it's going to work good for her that's fine but when it doesn't go right she doesn't do anything to be helpful she just runs and hides and that just that just breaks my heart a little bit i oh i i struggled with the elizabeth character when i was a teenager like a whole lot and um i thought she was a drag i thought she was boring um <laughs> see i liked her because i was a dragon also boring when i first read this <laughs> well i think the thing I, I i didn't identify with as a teenager is i was like why is she always waffling why is she always complaining about how things turn out why um <laughs> yeah see i got that 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 was no problem for me which was, um, <laughs> but then again, you know, it's, it's, I, I was a teenager where the, the most common criticism was, um, you know, you certainly know your own mind. Uh, yes, I do. Um, <laughs> and this time, you know, I have more sympathy for her because what she was, like, just imagine you're a school teacher who is essentially thrust onto a whole other planet with at least three different species, all of whom are sentient, all of whom are struggling for power. And someone says, okay, now your job is to rule this whole, this whole mess. Mm-hmm. And you're grieving, you're lonely, you feel wholly underqualified, and no one will listen to you when you say that. Um, like, I do have empathy for her. And I keep at, and and the way I, I try to connect with the character now is I keep asking myself, what is the message that Julian May is trying to send by spending so much time on Elizabeth and her struggles? Like, what is the message I'm supposed to get here when filtered through Julian May's very clearly Christian perspective mm-hmm. on how this is supposed to go? Is Julian, is, is, is Elizabeth's struggle supposed to mirror the struggles that people have with the effort to believe and the effort to, to stick to a creed. And 
the fact that sometimes it can feel very lonely and you're supposed to still buckle down in faith, even in, in the face of no evidence. Is this who Elizabeth is supposed to be? Um, or are we supposed to find out that she's like covertly selfish and stubborn in some way? And she's got to be broken of those, those, those sins. Like, I just can't quite figure out the role that she's supposed to play in Mm -hmm. this book. Yeah. It is a little muddy, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Like, and I wonder if the, sort of plan in the first two books changed uh, changed after that like if if my theory about uh, about the sudden shift towards the the remillards um is correct maybe elizabeth was going to i don't know do more or be more of a focus and then as you said mark just sucked all the oxygen out of the room and yeah. and she didn't get quite the uh, tender loving care that she would have otherwise like she can't be that much in control because suddenly we've got somebody else who's got you know paramount grandmaster like that was that was another it felt very retconny to me because like yeah. uh, elizabeth all this time has been a grandmaster redactor like that's like just mind-blowingly amazing the best. Yeah. yeah and then suddenly here comes uh oh there's a rank above that now guys Paramount, mm-hmm. which uh, yeah. Paramount Grandmaster is a really cool title. Like, I like mm-hmm. it, but it's still, it does feel a little tacked on. Yeah. So, and, and you know, I, I keep thinking I should sympathize there because this is a woman who's just learned that she's going to be outgunned by a bunch of people that she considers a menace to society. Um, and she's living among barbarians. She's lonely. She's grieving. Um, she's probably very angry about how things have turned out in so many ways. Mm-hmm. And, um, but she feels elusive, like the author has either made a choice, um, to let us witness all of her suffering, but not feel it, Mm. or like she, or like she has no way to have us relate to somebody who is supposed to stand in for every person's struggles in society. Like there's just a remoteness about Elizabeth. And, um, I know that's actually one of the critiques leveled at her. But I think there's a fundamental difference between showing it and then encouraging the same regard among the reader. Yeah. So it's, it's you know, I, I, I'm troubled by her because I want to try to figure out, like, if I can step into empathy for a character who's a violently indifferent mother and yeah. <laughs> a treacherous queen, <laughs> um, and if I can step into empathy for... Um, an abused girl who turns out to be a psychopath who drowns millions. And if I can step into empathy for um, even the dreaded children of the rebels who are way in over their head, the question is why can't I do it for this one person who's so important to all of the different plot lines and so important to all of the characters that I have come to have an investment in. Yeah. I mean, maybe there's just, there's not enough, there's not enough there to hook you. I, I was actually surprised at how little, Elizabeth figured into this book as compared to what I was expecting based on the previous one. Yeah. Yeah. She just, she, she kind of faded away in, in a manner that I was not expecting and didn't appreciate. So I, yeah. I like I said, I don't remember the next book. I am interested to see where things go from here. Cause I like, I will say this, I do remember uh, her eventual like ending fate, like that bit I won't say what it is, but I do remember that. So I'm just wondering how we get from here to there. Um, yeah. It'll be interesting. I know. And it's ironic because Elizabeth is the one who sets one of the biggest plot points in motion when she redacts Felice because that's what leads to Amory's murder. 
Um, and to touch on Amory briefly, mm-hmm. as the book does, as a matter of fact. Yeah, um, she also doesn't show up for very long. It's 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 the bring out your dead gaze, though. Like, they yeah. make it pretty clear in this book that Amory hides in her faith because this way she doesn't have to deal with her sinful, sinful little business. Mm-hmm. Um, and when she renounces her sexuality, she's killed for it. But she dies in a state of grace, apparently. Um, yeah, I didn't. T- I didn't take the anti-gay reading in the same way. Although now that you pointed out, like, yeah, actually, the, uh, the, the it's true. The lesbians did did both die. They both mm-hmm. did, didn't they? Yeah. And um, well, it, it's it's something that I keep thinking. Imagine if you're a queer kid who's reading these books. Mm-hmm. And what you learn is is you can probably see some of yourself in Felice because this is somebody who's ostracized and misunderstood and she doesn't fit into society. And she cleaves on to a love for uh, somebody who's the same gender. And you're like, oh, my gosh, finally, I see myself. And then by the end of book three, you're either a homicidal pervert who who gets off on torture or you're going to sacrifice yourself while renouncing your impulses like it's a terrible shock the same way i can only imagine if you're somebody with gender dysphoria mm-hmm. and you read about tasha bybar like you're going to have to yeah. sit with that for a few minutes and ask yourself if you're going to go on with the book yeah her whole ideas of of gender Women and sexuality yeah, are just it's, it's i mean and one of the things that stood out was actually the the description of the howlers as they are starting to migrate um she talks about males and females hermaphrodites and neuters like everything is yeah. just based on biological sex there's mm-hmm. like it's it's just taken as read that there's there's nothing beyond that you know she yeah. clearly had no concept of of you know being non-binary i guess you know that yeah. wasn't as, as big a thing in society but it existed and she just she doesn't even leave any room for it and i want to stress that again we're reading this with 2019 minds for sure um and um you know actually this has been what's kind of hilarious about all the 90s nostalgia that's going on pop culture analysis right now is i'm like you realize the 90s are pretty homophobic right guys Uh um (laughs) but um you know we're reading this with 2019 minds so we're reading this and, and imagining or, or trying to think about the experiences it's going through. But, you know, you're looking at somebody who, when she wrote these books, um, and when she wrote them as a middle-aged person, like she's coming at it from perspectives that had been shaped and informed from like the 1950s on. And so part of me is like, well, um, simply by making Felice and, Amory visible and making mm-hmm. them sympathetic that's better than can have be expected of the time mm-hmm. but it's still not good enough yeah it's, it's still uncomfortable you know? I mean even also like you know you have Mr. Betsy so you have a you know in one book we've got Tasha Bybar who is a transgender person and then Mr. Betsy mm-hmm. who at first I didn't actually really have a great handle on what Mr. Betsy's pronouns would be. Um, by mm-hmm. the end, uh, we find out that the, the, he, he, Mr. Betsy uses he pronouns and is just a transvestite and prefers dressing up in women's clothing. Um, you know, I guess that's also good for visibility. And I appreciate, like, he he was a hero, man. Like, Basil's oh, yeah. bastards were, like, I just... I love Mr. Betsy. Mm-hmm. I love him because he's so comfortable with who he is. 
Mm-hmm. And he's like, if, if you don't like it, that is your problem, not mine. Um. <laughs> yep. And actually, to, you know, to be fair, everybody around him for the most part is totally cool with it. Uh, I mm-hmm. actually I did have a problem with wearing his giant ruff like underneath where he was going to be soldering something like, of course, it's going to start on fire. Like you should yeah. you should know better than that. But uh, <laughs> but other than that, uh, I, I thought he was a pretty great character. Yeah. So. So, yeah, it's. um. Again, you know, you read these books through a 2019 lens, and there's a lot in there that's challenging. And um, I'm trying to, I'm I'm trying to strip away that context sometimes to try to figure out if it um, exonerates some of the treatment of some of the characters or not. Hmm. Um, but I really do feel like, and you know, this is <laughs> the title of the episode might just be enter stage left Mark Remillard, yeah. but I, I, mm. I really do feel like he has such a distorting effect on the narrative in general. Like, even if I want to go back and go, okay, for 1981 or whatever, mm-hmm. um, let's, let's, let's concur that this is not as horrible as we think it is now, or even for 1981, her attitude towards women who have the nerve to be fulfilled is pretty awful. Um, Like all of that is still kind of subsumed by, Oh, Mark Remillard is the person we're paying attention to now. Eh, Yeah. It's like a new planet (laughs) enters the solar system and suddenly Mm -hmm. the gravity well of like everything is, is thrown off and and warped. It was again, another propulsive read because I wanted to see where everything was going to end up. Mm -hmm. And I was very vested in um, a couple characters outcomes. But, you know, I'm kind of, uh, we have one more of these books to go in the Pleiocene saga. Um, I'm kind of anxious as to how the series is going to wrap up, because if it's all Remillard all the time. Um, that uh, that really, I feel like, would do a, a disservice to the characters that, mm-hmm. and, and the world, honestly, that she built uh, when we first set out on this reread in The Many Colored Land. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because that was the world I wanted to read about. Yep. Um, I think if you were to, and you know, to hey, we're doing some time traveling around between when the books are written and now. I think if you were to try to write a series like this now, you could actually effectively write a book about um, the shock of would-be colonizers becoming the exploited. Yeah. Like, and that would be an excellent four book series because there'd be a lot for people to unpack when they're like, no, no, we were supposed to exploit everything. How come we're being exploited? (laughs) (laughs) (sighs) Like there's your 2019 take right there. Um, Mm -hmm. And it would have been nice to see more of that. Like, I really did like the low lives. I really liked Madame Guderian's whole, boy, did I mess up when I let people go through the gates and now I'm trying to undo it. Like the idea that all of these people are stranded six million years in the past and want out is like a great saga. I am like, I find Mark as riveting as the next person, perhaps not as riveting as the author, but I find him riveting enough. I don't think he's necessary to the story she began to tell. And I kind of resent that it went yanked. I find it interesting that... I actually remembered The Many Colored Land and The Golden Torque fairly well. Like there was a decent amount of those books that I remembered. And this book and the next one, like going in to reading The Nonborn King, I really did not remember what was going to happen next. I just didn't remember. And I still don't. Like I don't know what is going to happen in the next book. And I have learned over the years of my podcasting, specifically with my Doctor Who podcast, I grew up watching classic Doctor Who and I saw a ton of those stories. But when it comes to talking about them in the now, since I haven't seen them for 
like 1994 is when I did like my last great big rewatch. And whenever I think about Doctor Who stories that I haven't seen since then, the ones that I enjoy are the ones that I remember. And anything that I didn't particularly enjoy just falls out of my brain. It just filters away. And I think that's kind of what happened with these final two books. And I think it's Mark Remillard's fault. <laughs> he's erasing you with your he's erasing your memory with his mind powers. Yeah. yeah. He's, he's a grand paramount master. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> and and that's the thing, is 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 she's so obviously like really loves that character. And um like clearly I feel like that story again had been banging around in her head and maybe she hit a wall with um what do you do with a bunch of time travelers and two races of space aliens? Like, I don't know. Maybe, maybe you're like, ah, I don't know. So, um, but this, this, this whole book has the feel of, um, of her trying to either, either, either there was a story that was that, that she was like, I simply have to write this. And so she's like, I have to write this, but Oh crap. I also have to wrap up the other one. I know what I'll do. I'll transition. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't feel like an organic introduction. Nope. And I don't think it does a lot of service to the world she's built. So I, I'm I'm a little nervous about, you know, revisiting book number four, because that's the wrap up for the world that we've built. We're going to get resolution of several plot lines. Mm-hmm. But do we get that resolution or is it whatever will happen to Mark? <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, it will it will be interesting. I am. Yeah, I'm, I have very ambivalent feelings about it. I'm looking forward to it and also kind of scared. Both of those yeah. things. All right. Well, I think we've we've said just about everything yeah. we need to say about this one. I think we have. This is uh, this has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you, Thank as you. always, Lisa, for, for bringing up lots of great things for me to, to sink my mental teeth into, so to speak. I so appreciate your attention to detail on these two because <laughs> you provided all of the best talking points. Well, thank you. Uh, Thank you all for listening as well. I am Erica. I am Lisa. And we very much thank you for joining us again on this epic journey. Saga of Rereading Epics is a proud part of the Incomparable Podcast Network. Visit theincomparable.com for more geeky podcasts. And while you're there, you can become a member, support the show, and get future episodes of this podcast right now.